came to realize that what started out as a natural disaster became a man-made disaster. We cannot control the natural disaster, but what we can do is control our response. Have you ever wondered whether disasters are actually natural? If so, you're in the right place. Hello and welcome. My name is Jason von Metting. And I am Xenia Chmutina. This is Disasters Deconstructed, a podcast where we examine why disasters really happen. Thank you for tuning in. Hey, Senya. How are you? Hello. I'm good. How are you? Good. Welcome back, everybody. I was looking yesterday in Florida, the open access journal system that the library supports here. I was just kind of looking around, seeing what journal options were available locally, mm. like with no fees, so that it had support from the libraries. And I came across this really cool one that was out of College of Medicine at FSU. And they have an annual and they, they put it together like a magazine. It's all people in the health field, but mm. it's arts. It's, so it's their creative publishing from health practitioners and researchers. Oh, wow. So poetry and art, like prose, and it's really cool. And it just got me thinking. I know you all have done something like that as well with the, what was it, the magazine that you all were making? Yeah, the Feminist yeah. Cities. Yeah. yeah, it was something like that. But wouldn't that be cool, something for people in disaster and hazard studies to have a creative outlet like that? It would um, be amazing. It's, it's not something we entertain enough or encourage each other to do enough. And something I'd love to do this year. I used to write really... Well, some people would say really bad songs. <laughs> I thought they were good songs. Maybe we can have some sort of a poll sometime and I can publish an old song. The lyrics were full of teenage angst. Yeah, but, okay, um, sure. We can indulge you and then laugh forever. Exactly. But I would like to figure out a way to do something very like different. Because I do plenty of more journalistic writing. Mm. But it's important. Some sort of creative outlet for people who are in really serious heavy fields right totally and we know we have lots of people who are actually super creative isabella tomasi of course comes to mind immediately right she writes amazing poetry in three languages as well and usneha krishnan as well a few other people we talked to quite a few people who actually mm. do creative stuff on the podcast i'm working on this edited volume with ricardo fontalba and daniel rivera mm. And you're writing the chapter for us, of course, yeah. And we've got a few really, I'd say, like, wacky entries in this edited volume where we invited people to write photographic essays or poetry, so it's not just going to be all academic. It'll be nice to just have a dedicated volume to that would allow people to express themselves, or maybe not even a volume, a kind of a conference which would be based on um, creative outputs, right, rather than normal academic, well, normal, in quotation marks, academic papers. Yeah, something for us to think about. And in fact, in today's episode, we're going to talk about the role of art in bringing solidarity, right? And talking about disasters and just narrating disasters. And I'm loving our conversations about solidarity and anarchism and activism so far this season. Talking of activism, this summer I went to South Korea for the first mm -hmm. time, right? And it really hit me how little I actually knew about activism and resistance there or even disasters, you know? And so it's been absolutely fascinating to learn and to see really very different kind of activisms 
I'd say, right? And also acts of resistance to state violence. And so I'm really excited that we get to talk about this today. I don't think we've discussed South Korea at all on our podcast before. And as always, perfect guest. Yay. So joining us today is Dr. Aram Jong. Aram holds a PhD in theater and performance studies from the University of California, Los Angeles. Her training consists of a thorough ground in the history of theater and performance, and her work takes a transnational approach to 20th and 21st century Asian and Asian American cinema, theater, and performance. Aram is currently working on an upcoming book on the aftermath of the Seoul ferry disaster. We will talk a lot about this today. So thank you so much for joining us today, Aram. Hi, everybody. Thanks so much for having me on the podcast. I'm very honored to be the first person talking about South Korea and disasters. Yay. Welcome. Yeah, this is great that we spent some time with you, Ariel. So your research on theater performance is really fascinating and a bit of a departure for us and probably a lot of people that research disasters to think about this. So I was hoping we could start off by asking you to tell us a bit more about your work and how you came to research and especially connecting the history of performance and theater to everyday struggle? Yeah, so actually for my doctoral dissertation, I wrote about something completely different. It wasn't about disasters or struggles at all. But then one day, actually on April 16, 2014, I was in LA and I was a doctoral candidate working on my dissertation. And I was looking at my Twitter feed and I saw this news in the late evening. It was late evening in Los Angeles that a ferry had sank in southwestern coast of South Korea. But then I read this headline that all the passengers on the ferry was rescued. So first I was very alarmed, but then I was very relieved to see the news headline. So I said, oh, okay, that's great. And then I went to bed. But then when I got up the next morning, I found a very different news headline saying that 304 passengers perished on the ferry and among them were 250 high school students. And so I was absolutely horrified. I couldn't believe what I was reading. And I could also see on my timeline live footage of the ferry sinking bit by bit. And I felt so helpless. I think numerous South Koreans watching the news also felt very helpless that there was nothing we could do. The ferry was sinking, but there was nothing we could help. And so there was immediately there was this anger and outrage from the people for asking why weren't they rescued you know, promptly? Why wasn't there a rescue team? And so in the aftermath of the disaster, there was all this commotion about asking what happened? Why did the ferry make a turn? Why did it start to sink? And then people started wearing these yellow ribbons on their clothes or on their bags to commemorate the victims and to mourn the victims. And I thought that's very interesting. And people are using these yellow ribbons to mourn the disaster. And because performance studies is this very broad umbrella term, which looks at all human actions from ritual to play, performance, street protest. I was fascinated to see the people having this kind of collective action of wearing the ribbons and then a few weeks doing street protests in South Korea, but also in diasporic communities. So I could see 
the people protesting in American cities where there's a large Korean American community. And so I thought, okay, this is really interesting to see the people take action, wearing yellow ribbons, protesting on the streets. But even at that point, I wasn't really thinking about documenting or writing about it. But then slowly, after a few months, I could see artists and activists creating street performances. For example, on the day of the college entrance examination, which is always in mid-November, the people laid out 250 book bags on the city square because 250 students had passed away. They were thinking about if they were alive, this could have been the day that they were taking the tests for their college admissions. And so the people were thinking about ways in which they could represent and also mourn the victims through the medium of performance. And this was also when the Bakune administration, the former South Korean president, was censoring and also surveilling the victims' families and supporters. So it was a very dark time in South Korea. And the ways in which these activists and artists were creating these performances actually gave me a sense of hope that maybe the people could do something. Maybe there could be a way to find the truth about this disaster. And so... I started saving and recording what the people were doing on the streets, the protests and performances. And then after a few years of documenting those acts, I decided this is actually enough material to become a book project. And so after I finished my PhD, I went to Korea in 2017 and I did some field work. I met with activists and artists and also victims' families. And now I have enough to create a book. I'm hoping that the book will be published in 2024, which is also the 10th anniversary of the ferry sinking. And yeah, we'll see when we get there. Amazing. And good luck. Good luck with the book. Thank Let us you. Know when it's out. You and I spend a lot of time talking about the disaster and thank you so much for giving me just so much of your time and so much information and background and again i was saying to jason when i came back that being being on some of the sites of memory the school for example it's been a very sobering and very somber experience and i still think about this quite quite a lot so i do want us to talk a little bit more about the Seoul ferry disaster many of our listeners would perhaps remember this news coverage that you've this just described, right? When the ferry sank on the 16th of April, 2014. But I think for many of us in the West, we learned about the ferry sinking. We learned that over 300 people were killed and vast majority were school children. And how could this happen? Outcry. And that was the end of the coverage, right? Then the Western media moved on to whatever happened on the 17th of April. And then, so we heard very little about public outcry, about the state's lack of response, the protests, the state violence that to an extent is still happening today, right? And that, that you've been observing for the past few years. And that has been so prominent over the years after the disaster. It wasn't covered at all. But what I've learned from you and from colleagues in Korea is that really parents of children and those who supported the parents were seriously silenced over the years, not just days after the disaster. 
So could you perhaps tell us a little bit more about the politics of the Seville ferry disaster and investigation, and particularly the findings of the latest investigation in September 2022? Because I know you've been really digging into it and following your threads, and yeah, it provided a fantastic insight. Sure. Well, first thing I want to say is that this disaster was not an accident. Rather, it resulted due to both this neoliberal state, which abdicated their duty to protect the citizens, and also private businesses who exchanged safety for profit. So first, this ferry was actually no longer in use after 18 years of service. But then Hongejin Marin Corporation, they bought the ferry and then they illegally refurbished it to allow more passengers and cargo than, than it's legally permitted. So eventually, having more passengers and cargo than legally permitted impacted the ferry's load balance. And then according to the disaster report, investigators learned that the overloaded cargo and the lack of water in the ballast tanks made it very difficult for the ferry to recover from its very sharp turn. Because if there wasn't so much cargo, if there was water in the ballast tanks, when the ferry made a turn, it could have recovered, but it wasn't able to. And then the captain and the majority of the crew were actually temporary workers with contracts that ranged from only six months to a year. And they actually had very little experience over this ferry. And then investigators also found out that the damage wouldn't have been so disastrous if the watertight doors were shut and if the cargoes were locked and secured properly because they found out that cargo had been moving around after the ferry made a sharp turn. So you can see that it's really due to the private businesses who exchange safety for profit and also the state that checked all the boxes when they were examining the ferry and they checked off, oh yeah, this is fine, this is totally fine. And so it was actually not an accidental event. It could have been prevented. And then once the ferry sank, former President Park said that she and the government had done everything they could to rescue the passengers. But prosecutors found out that the president learned about the ferry sinking way after the golden time had elapsed. So the golden time is the short window after an accident where there is the highest likelihood that rescue will prevent casualties. But, you know, the ferry sank um, a little after like 940, 950 a.m. That's when it started making a turn and it started sinking. But investigators found out that President Park learned about the incident hours after it started sinking. And she also made this very insensitive comment asking if the students are all wearing life jackets, why is it so difficult to rescue them? And then there, there was also a lot of criticism because the South Korean Coast Guard, the Ministry of Oceans and Fisheries, and the Ministry of Security and Public Administration failed to coordinate an effective rescue mission mm -hmm. when people were actually waiting in their cabins. I think many have read on the news that the captain and the crew were first to abandon the ship while they told the passengers over the loudspeakers to stay where they are in their cabins. Mm. But if there was a prompt rescue mission, it could have saved hundreds of lives waiting inside the cabins. 
And so I think because the Bakune government was scared of the public's anger and outrage of their ineffectual handling, they actually refused to cooperate with the victims' families, and they also tried to hinder the efforts of the Special Investigation Commission. And then the National Intelligence Service even surveilled and compiled personal information on the victims' families. For example, their political allegiances or whether they were Mm. members of the Labour Party or not. And then they even accused the victims' families of polarizing public opinion. And they accused the people on the Special Investigation Commission that, you know, they're leftists. Or mm. pro North Korean, pro communist. Okay, yeah, of course. Yeah. yeah, and it also turned out that the Blue House's public relations office requested that the media reduce coverage of the disaster. So, in the months where people were protesting, when the victim's family were protesting, the administration had the police suppress the crowd using water guns, even tear gas, and arresting the grieving families. And so when the artists started creating works that criticized the government and mourning the victims, the government created a blacklist containing more than 9,400 artists, and they would deny them grants and funding. And these include even some of the most prominent theater and film artists in Korea. I mean, it's fascinating to hear this all because we heard none of that. We knew none of that. And just seeing the power and integrity within which the parents continue to protest, right? And the support from the society that they've been getting and the backlash from the government is really quite fascinating. I don't know. South Korea is seen like this ideal place almost where no violence ever happens. But then, of course, recently, you know, there was the Halloween. Yeah crowd surge as well which again exposed lots of things that we don't think about and i really like how you said that it's in exchange it was the safety was exchanged for profit Mm -hmm. it's just such a brilliant example of disaster capitalism that we talk so much about yeah the corporation that bought and illegally refurbished the ferry i actually read that in 2013 they earned half a billion dollars in profit, but they only allocated 0.01% of that sum on safety training for the staff and crew. What could go wrong, right? Exactly, yeah. (laughs) It's amazing to see how artists and performers and parents and people that heard about it came together to fight back against injustice in this case and still are. And Ksenia told me a lot about this when she came back and about your research. And in one of the papers that we're going to provide a link to in the show notes, you discuss how performance represents or can represent something that defies explanation because we don't know how or why something happened. And in this case, it seems like so much information was hidden or obscured by those responsible for this disaster. And you talk in this paper about Yellow Ribbon's talent show, Namsan Art Center from Pluto and the Camino de Ansan pilgrimage. And in these performances, parents and activists are striving to represent the unrepresentable as they attempt to document the sinking and to achieve justice and memorialize victims. So it seems like the cultural and political conditions maybe created this urgency for artists to express their opinions. And like you said, they're facing a lot of backlash and censorship and 
consequences for doing this as they try to mourn the victims. So do you think that this kind of performance can challenge the discourse? And have you seen it challenge the discourse and contribute to social change? I definitely think there is an impact because we might think that the impact of theater or performance and their contributions to society, it might not be seen immediately. But when audience members see the mothers performing on stage, they're reminded of their pain and their trauma, and they can also resonate with their depression and the helplessness that they felt when they were watching the live newsfeed of the ferry sinking. And I really do think that audience members will be encouraged to pay more attention to the special investigation or even attend the family's future activities. And one of the things that I thought was important was after the ferry capsized, mainstream journalism and media in South Korea really focused on stuff like the legal punishment sentenced to the captain and the crew, or how much money, how much compensation the victim's family would receive from the government. They rarely investigated the systemic causes or conditions surrounding the disaster. When the people read something like, oh, the ferry's captain was sentenced to life, or the victim's families received financial compensation, they might think the cell ferry disaster is an event that's been concluded. But actually, mm. it's not an event that's concluded. The families are still struggling for justice. And so by watching a performance where the families are speaking about the aftermath of the performance in their own words and their own writing, I do think that it actually becomes a very valuable kind of public memory archive for the people because those kind of stories, those kind of testimonies are rarely visible, rarely seen in mainstream Korean media. And also, I think what's very valuable about these performances is that the mothers, the mothers of the victims, they have their own theater troupe and they perform on stage telling the stories about their children and the aftermath of the disaster. And in many ways, I think they're actually expanding motherhood politics in South Korea because they're stepping outside of conventional mourning and they're trying to transform their grief into political activism. And so in many ways, although their craft might be seen as gendered, I see them as active justice warriors, resistance fighters who are speaking for their children and also expressing the energy along with their activism. Positive energy is something that we've been trying to, I think, unpack a lot on this season because we, we talk about solidarity. We keep coming back really to the idea of hope, I think, in all of our seasons, because it seems like without solidarity, without hope, social change isn't possible. And I was wondering, we're talking about performance when we met in Korea. I was wondering to what extent you felt that the artists actually mobilized and how did that mobilization happen? How did they support the families with this acts, this acts of solidarity? So I think many artists centered not only the trauma of this disaster, but the lived experiences and wishes of the families, especially mm -hmm. the mothers. And they centered their goals and ethics of consent to promote witnessing rather than creating a spectacle out of the mothers. So mm. when you're watching these performances, it feels like you're witnessing their trauma, you're witnessing what they went through 
rather than spectacle as if you're in a zoo. So in many ways, I think the artists did a good job of representing the disaster and also the mother's stories. And then they also linked together the acts of remembering this tragedy and their victims to the political work of demanding government accountability and redress. And ultimately for the victims' families and the activists, they're trying to endeavor a way to create a safer and more caring society because we want to prevent that this kind of disaster never happens again. Although we have seen preventable disasters happening from time to time. Their ultimate goal is to create a safer and more fair, more caring nation and society. Jason and I have wrote about this and we talk about this quite a lot and how a disaster is indeed a spectacle, right? And it's such a useful spectacle mm -hmm. in that the kind of the state manipulates to create their own narrative that then feeds into the next spectacle and everybody enjoys it. And I use enjoy in quotation marks here already because disasters are so visual, right? Mm -hmm. Even when we put pictures when we talk about disasters, we don't put the pictures of corrupt politicians. We put pictures of death and destruction, right? Mm -hmm. That what attracts the attention. And so one of the things that strikes me when we talk about disaster and the state, this kind of relationship between disaster and the state, is this politics of misremembering or misrepresenting and very often erasing. Mm -hmm. We see it constantly. This is the vast majority of narratives around disasters. And so in your opinion, what is the role of performance is in resisting this kind of censorship, we could say, right? And misremembering, mm -hmm. even when performers, the artists themselves are forced to be silenced or under threat of being banned from funding and so on and so mm -hmm. forth. I think performance really provides a very unique way of calling out insincere government acts of authority, as we've seen with the Chinese people holding a blank mm. piece of paper to protest against yeah. their government. Performance really is a very unique way to do that. And also viewing these performances can elicit affect that can be conducive to forging community bonds. And ultimately, when I interviewed the victims' mothers, they want the community to remember the disaster. They don't want the community to forget about it because now that more than eight years have passed, they feel that, and also I feel this too, that the disaster is slowly slipping away from public memory. And of course, the former government did play a hand at that at well, the Pakone government, because mm. they didn't want the people to keep remembering and acting for this disaster. And so creating community bonds, solidarity, that's obviously very important. And performance is a very good way to do that. And performance also allows participants not to remain stuck in one place, which is very important when you're moving through trauma. And many of the victims' mothers told me that when they're on stage, of course, they're thinking of their children, but in a way, it also helps them regain their identity as an individual being. So performing actually has helped them work on their trauma. And also it helps with, like you said, remembering this disaster, right? Because by continuously performing the cell ferry disaster and its aftermath in various ways all over Korea, the audience can remember it. And they can also think about what it means to witness the mother's trauma, what it means to witness this disaster, and what it means to remember this disaster.
I remember when we were talking about this, you also mentioned that indeed like K-pop stars, for example, alluded to disaster as well. So it wasn't just parents supported by artists doing the performance, but like famous kind of pop culture was also supporting them, right? Yeah, many South Korean musicians directly or indirectly to the disaster. And I think some musicians were very vocal about it. They would post on their social media accounts or they would speak out in interviews that, yes, this song is about commemorating the victims or something like that. Mm -hmm. Whereas some musicians were very quiet about that. But whether they spoke out about it or not, the people would assume that it is about the disaster. And I think there were many factors that went into the decision why a musician would be quiet about that. But one of the reasons is because, like I said before, the Bakune government censored artists who spoke out about the disaster. So they try to avoid censorship. But mm -hmm. also, whenever a musician says, oh, this is a song about the self-ferry disaster, then it becomes a news story right away. And then some right. people would praise the musician. Oh, that's great that you're being critical and vocal. But also some people would dismiss this musician and call him, oh, he's a leftist celebrity or something. <laughs> so I think... Some artists purposely would use evocative lyrics or motifs in their songs mm. alluding to like yellow or the sea or something about goodbyes. So it might be about the disaster, but, you know, he could be very quiet about it. But whether they were vocal about it or not, I think many people would immediately kind of make the connection and think that it's about the disaster. So, yes, there are... I think many K-pop songs and many musicians who are actually thinking about the disaster. It's amazing to hear about how people from a society from very different like backgrounds and experiences come together in solidarity like this. And it's a great example, I think. And it's just been a privilege to hear from you today and spend time listening. And I think it really adds to our season, talking about solidarity, a very unique example from South Korea. So we really appreciate you spending time with us today, Ariam. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed being here and look out for my book, which will come out in 2024. <laughs> Thank you so much. Well, thank you all for being with us today. And before you go, a few quick reminders about how you can stay connected with the podcast. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at DisastersDecon. The podcast is available on all the major platforms. Please download, share, and most importantly, subscribe. And if you haven't already done this, we really appreciate your ratings and reviews on Apple Podcasts. This will help us to continue making content for you. You've been listening to Disasters Deconstructed. And don't forget, disasters are not natural. See you next time. You have been listening to Ksenia, Jason, and me, Aram Jung, on Disasters Deconstructed podcast. 